0: A number of you have been around me this morning, Sunday school, hallway, parking lot, and I failed to tell you, and I apologize, and I see uh, some of our medical community here that are going to get mad at me. I I I didn't tell you I was positive. Sorry. I'm positive that I'm sick of COVID. Aren't you? I mean, just, I know, we're there. Now, I feel fine. I've been inoculated and everything else, but I'm just, um, not just Charlie, but our medical community and all the news and numbers that we're hearing, um, I'm ready for that thing to go back to hell uh, as quick as it can get there. And so, uh, with that, um, good morning to you, Hillcrest. I invite you, if you will, uh, with me, uh, join with me in Matthew chapter 15, Matthew uh, chapter 15, we're going to start reading at verse 21 down through about verse 28. As you are turning uh, to Matthew 15, I'll give you a little bit of uh, a history lesson, some background noise uh, as to where we're headed. If you've got the, t- the, uh, <clears throat> the kind of Bible uh, that has a section of maps in the back of your Bible, um, You might not do it now, but at some point as you're referencing what we're talking about, uh, there should be a a map of the Old Testament times uh, when the kingdom was divided between north and south. Uh, The northern kingdom was known as Israel, and the southern part of of the nation uh, was known at that time as Judah. Uh, Jesus was known as the Lion of Judah. He was a southern uh, man, he came from the south, that's where Bethlehem was at, that's where Jerusalem was at, and if you look at that map, you'd see uh, up in the northern area, up in what was known as Israel at that time, on the northeastern section, that's where Galilee, in that area, and Jesus had some friends and some um, some work done all around the Sea of Galilee, and over in the northwest section, uh, that is where the Canaanites lived, those leftover people from uh, years and years of war from the Old Testament days. You and I know them as the Samaritans. Uh, those are the people that Jesus and his people, his Jewish people, his Jewish nation from the south, had very little, if anything, to do with. Now, again, referencing that map, and again, if you, if you just see the nation of Israel and you draw a belt across the midsection, you've got the north and, of course, the south. Back before that belt was there, it was one big nation and David was the king. Everything was going good. Everything was at peace. There was no war. They were expanding, and everything for about 40 years was peachy king. And then David passed away, and his son Solomon took over. And way back in the book of 1 Kings do not turn here. You can make a note and look it up later. 1 Kings chapter 9 Solomon becomes king. God has a conversation with Solomon at this time, and he, tell, he gives him what we would call an if then statement. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 4, God says, If you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you, then I will bless you. It's an if-then statement. If you will do what I'm telling you to do, if you will follow me, Solomon, then I will continue to bless the nation of Israel. Well, if you know anything about Solomon... You know that he did not live, live up to his end of that bargain. He turned out to be a scoundrel on many fronts. And because of that, his, his, his successors down through the line of kingship turned out to be worse after worse after worse after worse. And Israel did not recover from bad kings. This is when they divided from into north and south all the way down from first Kings 9 all the way to first Kings chapter 16 we run into the last evil king of this nation known as Ahab he was a scoundrel upon scoundrels there's a reason why we do not name our daughters Jezebel and it's because of his wife they were not nice people Ahab was horrible in fact 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33, says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the other kings of Israel before him. In other words, he was worse than worst. You could not get any worse than King Ahab. From that time, in 1 Kings 16, all the way to our story in Bethlehem, when Jesus was born... Much changed. For one thing, in about 62, 63 BC, these people known as the Romans moved in and they took over. And they took over in a big way. Everything changed. There was very little activity coming from God in those days. Yes, there were prophets speaking, but if you again go back and read your Old Testament, The prophets were ignored. The the prophets were mistreated and abused. This, This stable in Bethlehem, that story changed everything. And for the next 33 years or so, this man named Jesus walked about the countryside teaching and healing and calling out sin. And he became famous for it. Even by the people that did not necessarily like him, they all knew about him. And everybody wanted to see what he was going to do or say next. You get over into the New New Testament, Mark chapter 3, verse 7 and 8 says that Jesus' fame is growing. In fact, Mark chapter 7, verse 24, we read that Jesus now has to hide from people. He can't just go out into public. If he were alive today, paparazzi would be all over him like Justin Bieber. Not that that's a thing. Everybody knew about Jesus. Everybody wanted to see what he was up to next. What was he going to say next? Who was he going to offend next? Was he going to do some type of a parlor trick and heal somebody again? This is a guy that we just want to check out. Except in the northern country. Remember Samaria? Those people. Now, if we were all good Jewish people today, even in 2021, I would say the word "Samaritan people" and shivers would go down our spines. The Samaritans were the half-breed, dim-witted cousins on their second, on their mother's side. They wanted nothing to do with these people. They did not cross the border from north to south. These people and the Samaritans—they knew about the coming Messiah but they didn't know about Jesus. They knew the Old Testament, but they didn't have a clue about Bethlehem. They knew what to look for, but they didn't know that he had come near. These people were absolutely ignorant of all things that Jesus was up to. You remember the woman at the well? The story of how Jesus goes and meets with this woman? he asks her for something to drink and he turns that conversation on a a dime and, and begins talking about worship. What does she say? You people, you Jewish people say we're supposed to worship down there, but we up here say that we're supposed to worship here on this mountain. We're separated from each other, but we still know the same God. Going back to 1 Kings, In fact, 1 Kings 17, you remember the story of Elijah eating from the blackbirds there by the the dried-up riverbed? There's a drought. And God provides for Elijah. He provides for a widow. He provides for those people that are his people in that area. In other words, God is on the move, and God is active in Samaria. Enough to where news of God, news of the Messiah, news of something happening has trickled north. How do we know that? Matthew 15, starting at verse 21, says that Jesus went away from where he had been preaching and teaching. He had went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman, a Samaritan, from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take... The children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it it done for you as you desire for your daughter. And her daughter was healed instantly. Tyre and Sidon. Those places do not come up in your Sunday school lesson often because not much is said about this region in the northwest section of that map that's in the back of your Bible. Why? Again, this is Samaritan country. Jews do not go up there. There's no action that's happening in our New Testament in that area. In fact, Tyre and Sidon... If you look on them Mount, they're, they're coastal cities, just like Portland or Seattle, way up in the northwest part of the country. This is the furthest north that we have written that Jesus ever went while he was on earth. And yet nobody there knew anything about him, not much anyway, and yet he gets there and this lady comes out of the woodwork and blows his cover. How did she know about him? How did she know that he, who he precisely was? How did she know exactly what he was capable of doing? It's been 800 years since Elijah went through this drought in that same area, and yet here she is calling him out as the Messiah. She knows what Jesus is capable of. How did she know that? It's probably because she was taught what to look for. She knew the Messiah was coming, and she knew that there was a checkbox of all these things that he would be able to do and all the things that he would be saying. And when he finally came to her neighborhood, she knew exactly where to go with her problem. And so she comes to Jesus with a heartfelt, honest, parent-loving request that any of us would give. My daughter has gone down. Your verse here says, my daughter is vexed with a demon. She, she is overwhelmed by a demon. This is... This is an idiom. This is how these people talked when their child got sick or someone else got sick. My daughter's gone down. She has a demon. That's that's another way of saying she she might have the flu. She has epilepsy. There's something wrong with her. We don't know why she's sick. We don't know exactly what's happening. But this is how she's summing it up as a mother. my, My daughter is being vexed. My daughter is under attack. Please have mercy. Please help. What parent would not do the exact same thing? What parent would not rush and run and kneel and scream and beg and cry for their daughter, for their son? Even if you are single, even if you've never been married, even if you do not have a child at all to your name, what person who is rightly vexed and under stress and pressure of the world. I've already mentioned to you earlier that I'm positively sick of COVID. There's other things that I'm sick of as well. I, I refuse to watch the news. I know that I need to be well informed. I agree with that. I just, right now, I just need a break. I can't take it. I'm tired of it. And I know you are too. What rightly thinking person would not go to a source of help? When they are vexed as this mother is vexed. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. Whilst on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. What a plea. What a plea from a heart mom. I want you to notice a few things about this lady's plea. It's not the heart of what is trying to get across, but, man, it is so power-packed. When she speaks to Jesus, notice with me, how clear she speaks. She leaves no room for ambiguity. We do not know and probably could guess that she has no Bible training. She's never been to a Bible college or seminary in her life and yet this lady from the northern country a samaritan knows exactly who to call on and she's very clear about it i've met matthew i see john i know this guy named james i don't think judas could do me any better good i don't want to talk to these guys i'm going to go straight to the source count it three times three times in this conversation Lord, Lord, Lord. Is that pretty clear who she's talking to? She knows that she needs help. And she knows exactly where she's about to find it, or at least where she's going to try to find it. Lord, have mercy on me. Everyone listening to her, in this crowd of people that's mixed with Samaritans and Jews, disciples and non-disciples. Everyone listening to this conversation will know exactly who she's addressing. She's very clear. Make no mistake about it. I'm coming to Jesus for help. She also speaks not just clearly, but she speaks sincerely. Notice what she's asking for. She's only asking for two things, and neither one of them can be purchased with money. This is what's so neat. She does not come and say, my, my daughter is sick. I, I would like to try a new experimental drug that the Netherlands have come up with that costs a lot of money that I know is hard to get a hold of. She doesn't say that. My daughter is, is, has a demon. She's vexed. She's sick. I need one of those defibrillators, and I need it now. She doesn't ask for any of that stuff, anything that costs money. In fact, she doesn't ask for anything that you can put your hands on. She doesn't even ask for Tylenol or a Band-Aid. What does she ask for? Mercy and help. That's all she's asking for. Mercy and help. Verse 22 and verse 25. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, help me. And this is very odd. Robert Smith, who is Bible teacher over at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, pointed this out. And if he hadn't pointed out years ago, I probably never would have thought about it, but it's, it's very odd. In this conversation, in this scene, you've got this mother that comes up out of nowhere, drops to her knees, and starts crying out to Jesus because her daughter is back home sick. And yet, if you read her prayer... Who's she asking mercy for? Who's she asking help for? I thought her daughter was sick. And yet here she is saying, have mercy on me. Help me. Is this a mean mom or what? She doesn't even bring her daughter's situation up. Have mercy on me help me why would she do that well if you have to ask that question you've never seen a child get sick you've never seen a child hurt most of you know this but my wife and I are now empty nesters I know we've mentioned that before we've been empty nesting now as of yesterday one week so far so good I don't, I don't know what Harold and Beth Anthony did before Life 360. My parents, checking on, we're always on the phone. Well, he's in his dorm. Well, he's going somewhere. Well, he's do- I don't care. I'm just glad that they're gone. I say that because I moved, we moved both of our children in last weekend. They're set up. Their rooms look great. They've got tons of friends. Classes have started. They're, they're, they're okay and I'm glad with that but as even as last weekend was closing out I reminded both of them now, I graduated high school and then after high school I spent 11 and a half years in school after I graduated high school now don't be impressed I should be a lot smarter than I am I tell them that to, to make sure they understand that this is not necessarily the end it's not necessarily your last first day. Just get through it, and we'll see what's next. I had a great opportunity to sit in college and in seminary with some wonderful, wonderful professors and teachers that had great influences on my life. I'm so, I'm so sorry that the marriage conference didn't work. It's, it's going to happen, but when, when, when Dr. Aiken is standing here, you need to be here and bring as many people as you possibly can. He's one of the best influences in my life. I learned lots of history, lots of language, lots of dates, lots of biographies, lots of things that I was able to read and study. And I'm so grateful, grateful for that. You want to know when I learned how to pray? Seriously. Seriously. After all that was said and done, and I had more degrees than a thermometer, you want to know when I learned how to pray? Coming out of an emergency room in Tupelo, Mississippi, with a lung doctor saying, your son's lung is collapsed, and you need a sweat test because we think we know what this is. And I couldn't even pronounce or spell what the man just said and all I could see was my child, a baby, being put into an ambulance with his mother and they're going to Memphis. They're on the way to Le Bonheur. And I'm literally in a car behind the ambulance pushing the guy like Dale Earnhardt. Why won't you go on, guy? Move. I know that we'll go faster. My, my, my needle is buried. Go. That's when I learned how to pray. And I'm just going to be honest with you. It was not a polite prayer. It was not an easy, kind, nice, vocabulary-worded prayer. It's nothing that your grandmother would say before you eat. My, My knuckles were white. My blood pressure was probably stroke level. I had veins popping out of my neck that I didn't even know were there. I was, I was yelling, screaming. You watch your child go down, and you will learn how to pray for mercy. And you will learn how to pray for help. God, help me. God, have mercy on me. This is what this mother is asking. You have to help me so that I can help her. You must give me mercy so that I can show her Mercy. She spoke with such sincerity. She spoke with such clarity. And it's almost humorous the fact that she also spoke repeatedly. She would not stop. Again and again and again. She just would not take no for an answer. Verse 23 of what we just read shows how these great, big, theological, giant, big-hearted disciples treated her. Jesus she's bugging us will you send her away that's a way of us how we would say this lady is annoying she is she's annoying will you make her be quiet will you send her away please she was bugging heaven to get her answer and those who were closest to jesus were asking for her to be quiet I want you to note this, and this is the heart of what Matthew's getting at. I want you to note Jesus' response to this plea. This mom has nowhere else to go. I've got to try something. My child's sick, and I can't lose her. The first thing Jesus does, he reaches out his hand in love and grace. He gently takes her by the hand and kneels with her in prayer and tells her that her Her faith has healed her daughter and everything's fine and everyone sees it and revival comes to Samaria and there's peace in the land no verse 23 is kind of shocking at first reading he ignores her Lord have mercy on me and Jesus just walks right by like he didn't even make eye contact it's rude he ignored her. I mean, read your Bible. He flat out ignored her. Don't think the Bible messed up like your version is missing some words because that's what all of ours say. He walked past her, and he did not say a word to her. What's wrong with Jesus? Why would he do that? I was really mean, Jesus. Next, not only does he ignore her, but it gets worse. In verse 23, the disciples come. Would you please make her be quiet? She's ignoring us. In verse 24, Jesus says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, he rejects her. She's not one of us. She's not one of the lost sheep. And so I have nothing to do with her. I'm just going to ignore her. I'm going to reject her. I'm going to walk past her. I'm not going to make eye contact. I'm not going to acknowledge that she's even alive. Did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the bed? What's the problem? I thought Jesus was this nice, loving, caring Savior. And here he is ignoring this woman and rejecting this woman. Oh, it gets worse. Because in verse 26, he flat out insults her. He insults her. He calls her a name calls her a dog How about that read for yourself verse 26 he calls her a dog he walks past her he rejects her and then he seemingly just as meaning and starts calling her names you know that there's always more to the story when it comes to Jesus he's always up to something there's a reason why he is doing this Remember where he's at. Remember who was all around him. Remember how many eyeballs are watching this situation. How is he going to respond to this Samaritan woman who has no business being in his presence? He has no reason to talk to her. He should just reject her. In fact, he should just call her a name and be done with it. And as he's going through these verses, you can almost imagine the Jewish community that's watching this applauding Way to go, Jesus. You actually got something right here, big guy. That's how we treat these nasty Samaritans. But it's those Samaritans, that crowd of people that Jesus is being watched by, that simply need an education and an introduction into who he is and what he's able to do for them. Again, they know about the Messiah, but they don't know the whole story. These people, these Samaritans, they knew what it was like to be hurt, to be cast aside, to be overlooked. They knew that they were not 100% Israel, and any good Jewish person would point that out at the drop of a hat. You're a half-breed. You're nothing like us. You do not belong. And yet here's Jesus displaying a massive amount of love towards this woman by taking these actions. Clay, how is it love to reject somebody? How is it love to call her a name? I mentioned the woman at the well earlier. In John 4, verse 4, right as we lead into that scene, it says that Jesus is leaving the southern part and he's headed up to Galilee and that he had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. If you look at that map again, any good Jewish person that was worth their salt of being a good Jew would go east, cross over the Jordan, walk straight north up through the sands of a desert, and then cross back over the Jordan into Galilee. They would skip Samaria all, altogether. No good respectable Jew would ever set foot inside Samaria. And yet we're told he had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. He went to that woman at the well because he loved her. He went to this lady here at Tyre and Sidon because he loved her. And he loved those people. And he wanted all of those people to know exactly, not just that the Messiah was come, but that he had come. This awkward response that Jesus gives this lady has much to teach these Samarians and I know they have a lot to teach me. And I can guarantee you they have a lot to teach you as well. Pay attention to this. God's delay is not his denial. I'll say that again God's delay is never to be misunderstood as his denial. Mark chapter 4. Around verse 35 and following, Jesus and his disciples are in a boat, and you know the story well. They're on, on the water during a storm, and the boat is sinking. And Jesus is taking a nap. He's up at the front asleep, and they rush up to him, and almost in an accusative manner, they ask him, Do you not care? Do you not care that we're about to drown? What a question. Don's already mentioned everything that's going on in our world. Does it not seem that sometimes that you just want to look up and say, "Do you not care?" I mean, did, did you lose Afghanistan on the map? I mean, can, God, can you spell COVID? Do you know what you're doing? Yes. His denial. I'm sorry. His delay is not his denial because you know how the story of those guys in that boat ends I would even go so far as to remind you of the cross and you see the the travesty the, the murder of Jesus on the cross and you think God's lost his mind but you know how that story ends his delay is not the same thing as his denial God's silence never, ever overrules his sovereignty. His silence never, ever overrules his his sovereignty. Sovereignty is a $10 word that means he rules over everything. It doesn't matter if it's your DNA. It doesn't matter if it's your relationships. It doesn't matter if it's Hurricane Ida. He does have the whole world in his hands. One of my heroes from years ago, C.S. Lewis, wrote as a, when he was a child sitting at his mother's knee bef- before she passed. He would sit, to, sit there and he would, he would watch her needlepoint. Many of you have seen needlepoint, you know, Bible verses or such, hanging on people's walls. He said he would, from his perspective, he would be looking up all these strings of different colors hanging down. He said, even as a child, I thought that she had lost her mind. She's not very good at this. I, I can do better than that, and I don't even know what she's doing. From my perspective, she was making a mess, but when it was all said and done, and when she was complete with her work, she turned it around, and it took my breath away. Oh, that's what you were doing. I had no idea what you were up to. His silence never overrules his sovereignty. He knows what he is doing, even though we don't. God's word is always the best and final word for us. His word is always the best and final word for us. In our Sunday School class this morning, one of the verses we looked at was from Revelation 21, verse 5, where the conquering king, Jesus, announces to anybody who wants to hear it, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm making everything new. There is nothing that's going to escape this grand artist's hand. I'm making everything new. Now, that might not resonate with you, but that just means you've probably not lived long enough to suffer or to see other people around you suffer or to see your loved ones suffer. And yet, you get a promise from King Jesus himself that I will indeed make all things new. That's the final word, and that's the best word. Jesus knows what he's doing And he knows why he's doing, going back to this lady. He knows why he's having this conversation with her. He's not being mean and hateful. He's ignoring her for a purpose. He's rejecting her for a purpose. He's calling her a name for a purpose. Again, that whole crowd, they don't know who he is. They've never been introduced to him. They've heard of a coming Messiah. This is his way of saying, I'm here. Think about it. Have the Samaritans ever been rejected in their life? Have they ever been insulted and despised? Ever. Isaiah 53, way back in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. It's a chapter known as the suffering servant. It's a precursor to Bethlehem. This is is what you're going to be looking for when the Messiah gets here. 53, verse 3. This servant was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You ever dealt with grief in your life? Don't be honest. You ever dealt with grief? You ever felt dejected? Rejected? You ever been put down, overlooked, and called names? You ever been hurt? Well, guess what? Jesus has to. Jesus completely understands where you're sitting, where you're standing, what you're feeling. Jesus has been there. Jesus has done that. Again, these Samaritans knew the Messiah was coming, but they had no idea that he was standing in front of them. And this was his way of telling them, you can trust me. Think about this. And it's very simple. Think of the longest prayer you've ever prayed in your life. Can you think of that? What is the longest prayer you've ever prayed in your life? And I could also ask you what you had for lunch on April the 10th, 1983. I have no idea what the longest prayer I've ever prayed for. And some of y'all weren't alive in 83. That just hit me. But you get the point. I, I don't remember my longest prayer. You know what I found out? In my 49 years of living, a heart that's making a request out of worship always gets an answer. I might not like the answer, and for a time, that answer may be silence. But I can't think of one prayer that I've ever prayed in honest, reverent worship that God has not answered. One way or the other. I don't know what my longest prayer is. I I too. That's an exercise in futility. I have no clue the longest prayer I've ever prayed. But I do know this. I can think of some pretty powerful short prayers that I've prayed. Verse 25 of what we just read said that this lady came to Jesus. She knelt before him. And look how long her prayer is. Lord, help me. Lord help me. I can't, I can't get anything else out. But you just help me. She had already cried out, have mercy on me. And now it's even shorter. Lord help me. Matthew. Just a, a chapter ahead of this one where we just read Matthew 14 verse 30 has another scene of Jesus and his disciples in a boat. And Peter jumps out of the boat, starts walking on water right alongside Jesus. you remember this scene? Then he starts to sink. "Lord, save me." That's it. That's all he said. "Lord save me." The thief on the cross, Easter. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Lord, remember me. That's it. That's all he said. Just remember me. Again, Robert Smith, the man I mentioned earlier from Beeson. He said that he was beyond grateful, and I agree. I'm beyond grateful that God does not put a tape measure measure on my lips. But on my spirit, Lord, help me. Have mercy. Save me. Those short, powerful prayers. Prayers that people pray like this lady and they just will not be quiet. They keep bugging heaven until they get an answer. So again, let's go back to what Don has already alluded to. As we are standing here, I'm standing here, you're sitting there in the comfort of our church building, and I'm thankful for it. We have neighbors to the south of us at this very second who are facing something as large as Katrina. Sixteen years to the day, Katrina. Of course, airstrikes early this morning. We dropped bombs. People were killed. And I can say this as well, even when we go to war and we attack and we do get revenge or kill people, bad guys, that is nothing for a Christian to rejoice over, for chances are those people are not with Christ. We hear of COVID and numbers going through the roof variance this variance that and I already told you the first thing I said when I got up here boy I'm just sick of all this well what's our response as a believer what is your response it may not be that your daughter has a demon or your daughter is sick like this woman it may be that you were expecting a marriage conference and in the back of your mind you're thinking we Need a marriage conference. My wife and I, my husband, we need some help. Our marriage has a demon, it's vexed. It may be that you are indeed stressing and worrying about children who've moved off to college. I mean, there's a, a thousand and one things that could be on your heart as a collective body right now. What are you prepared to do? We have Bible studies on prayer, we write books on prayer, we have conferences on prayer. We give prayer requests. But can we ever be found guilty of this, as this lady is here, of bugging heaven to death until we get the answer? Lord, help me. Lord, have mercy on me I'm to the end of my rope. And so here's what we're going to do we are going to have an invitation, and, and you, you are free. You are free to come and to pray. Do that. But you don't have to walk. You don't have to move. You can sit. You don't even have to stand. But as we're going through this invitation moment, my prayer is very simple. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Help us to get through this that we're going through. Help us to make sense of National and political news. Help us to love our spouses and our kids. Have mercy on us when we fail to do those things. Help us to get through college classes and that transition into that new season of life. Help us to be good senior citizens who are pouring our hearts into our church because there's nothing else on our calendar. Would you have mercy on all of us when we fail to do these things? But we cannot do these things unless you first and foremost, God, help us. Help us, please. That's my prayer for you. Don and the music team is going to come and to lead us. Tracy and others will be down front if you need to speak, if you need someone to pray for you. Please. Take this opportunity, but as a word of warning. Do not just take this opportunity because there are other opportunities on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday to pray. Use all of the opportunities that are given you throughout the week to pray these prayers. Lord, help me. You stand to your feet. Let me pray us into this time. Father, as...